I'm David Crow, and this is episode 254 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. We now have a Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Unlike the page, anybody can initiate a post on the group, as long as people um, r remain polite and follow the rules of the group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at InfectiousMyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on PRN.FM, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other podcast programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. PRN.FM has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and leave a message for the show. Remember that if you dial any of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you. Send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the photographic bookmarks I make by hand. I do really love to hear from you, so don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are also infectiousmyth, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information you're gleaning, for the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas and challenges to others. This month, thanks to special friends Robert Meekins, Elizabeth McLean-Knight, and Lynn Wright, plus three anonymous donors, and to patrons John Jasper, Aaron Spiegel, Janet Nietvelt, and Jake, and to all the others who donated and supported the show in many other ways. And now let's get to this week's guest, whose ideas on the corona parallel mine in many, many ways. Andrew Kaufman is licensed and board certified in psychiatry and forensic psychiatry former assistant professor of psychiatry at SUNY Upstate Medical University, former medical instructor of hematology and oncology at the medical university of, I have, uh, where, which medical university? South Carolina. South Carolina, okay, I had a typo here. And a consulting expert witness. He did a psychiatry residency at Duke University, a fellowship in forensic psychiatry, um, at SUNY and obtained an MD at the Medical University of South Carolina and a BS in biology at MIT. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kaufman. Well, thank you so much for having me, David. Uh, I think you're the guest that I have had more people say, you have to get Andy Kaufman on your show because he's saying the same things as you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, I told you that uh, when I heard you on an interview, I thought I was listening to myself and then I had to take a double take. Yes. Well, um, we do have a few people in common. Like I noticed that you thanked Stefan Lanka, who I've interviewed, and uh, Nancy Turner Banks, who I've interviewed, and also Thomas Cowan, who I just got to know through this whole uh, coronavirus thing. Yeah, I have too. And uh, yeah, those are uh, definitely some of my heroes that you mentioned there. It, yes, yes. Uh, critical people who are critical of the uh, medical establishment, especially when it comes to viruses. Um, another thing we have in common is that we're expert witnesses. I'm me in telecom, you in psychiatry. So, um, yeah, that's maybe, interesting. Maybe we were separated at birth. <laughs> well, if we if we start getting to know each other, what else are we going to find out? <laughs> yes. Okay. This could be scary, but we we don't want to have a love and we don't have a discussion. 
so um, what people have noticed is that you and I came up with similar conclusions that there's no exogenous infectious RNA virus that people are calling COVID-19. Um, so what started you questioning uh, the existence of the virus? I mean, did you, was that your initial position or did you sort of accept what was happening and then go, wait a minute? Yeah, well, um, no, I didn't know what was going on at first, but I knew something wasn't right because, you know, I've been alive through uh, all of these other, you know, so-called pandemics like SARS and H1N1 and Zika and Ebola, etc. And I noticed that, you know, every time they're really hyped up in the media and then in the end, nothing really happens uh, substantially. Uh, but with this with this particular situation, I saw that the measures that they were taking in China, and that's what really alerted me uh, that this is something I need to pay close attention to. And so I started at a more top-down approach where I was just looking at, you know, well, okay, are people really dying? What's going on? Mm -hmm. um, is it justifying the, you know, the policies they're having there? And that led me, of course, to uh, investigate the whole virus issue and it wasn't that long before that I really started looking into germ theory. It was only maybe six months earlier. Okay. Um, and so, because, you know, I've been studying medicine for a long time and mm -hmm. I've been studying medicine as a skeptic for more than 10 years, but it was a, it's kind of a slow process to get down to the fundamental level because everything is really built upon the germ theory paradigm and not, not just with respect to infectious disease, but actually with respect to most other conditions, right? Like we have the war on cancer, for example, which was a major research effort to try to find viruses being responsible uh, for cancer. Right. But, but not too many people know that's what it's about. But we think about this military paradigm that our body is a battlefield and, you know, our soldiers are the immune system and that there's invaders from outside that we have no control over. Yes, and uh, it's it's always very profitable, right? Like if you can if you can find a virus, you have a target for a drug, um, and and that's perhaps the best thing because you, you know with genes, gene therapy has been pretty much an unmitigated disaster. It's it's pretty hard to even think about doing that, but with bacteria and viruses, um, you know you can you can always find a target for a drug and given that viruses are exist because virologists say they do um you can always find a virus in anything yeah there, it seems like uh, every week they're discovering a new one yes yeah I, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of viruses must be cataloged somewhere one of the things you looked into a lot more than me um like I, I looked at a lot of the same papers as you and I'm saying, okay, they didn't prove that the RNA came from a virus, but you uh, focused down on exosomes uh, a lot more than me. So one of the things you've, you've said is that is it exosomes, I mean, first of all, w what's your definition of an exosome? Because that's the first place to start. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll stick with what the uh, research community who uh, does research on exosomes uh, say is the definition um, because what I think is a little bit more than that but uh, what they say is basically that they are small vesicles which are secreted by virtually all uh, eukaryotic cells certainly all mammalian cells 
um, that have a role in extracellular communication, so between cells that are separated uh, physically from each other in different locations, and that there's also some evidence that they're involved in uh, taking up toxins in the extracellular space. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're, they're basically, like a lot of things in, at the cellular level or the subcellular level, they're a membrane with stuff inside. Exactly right. Just like um, all the organelles inside the cell are. Right. And that is essentially what a virus is believed to be, right? It's a, it's a, a, a coat with RNA or DNA inside. Yeah, exactly. And, and interestingly, exosomes have been demonstrated that have the same different varieties of genetic material that the viruses are purported to have, which you know, includes single-stranded and double-stranded DNA. It includes mitochondrial DNA. Um, it also includes uh, microRNA and messenger RNA. Yes. <clears throat> um, a question I had about RNA, and this is something I haven't looked into, is that we know that RNA is transcribed from DNA. Does it always have the, um, the same uh, a sequence that comes from one strand of DNA, or does RNA get edited, joined together, split up, stuff like that as it's, as it's processed? Well, yeah, it's, um, so there's a whole uh, field called uh, post-translational uh, processing, which is, uh, describes all of these, and there are many, many different ways that it can get uh, processed. So one thing that, hap that is uh, important to be aware of is that whenever DNA or RNA gets copied, so that includes when, when RNA gets transcribed, um, that there are mistakes that occur. And there are repair mechanisms uh, to identify and fix some of those mistakes, but they don't, uh, they're not always successful. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, the primary RNA transcript uh, can be uh, a variety of different things. There's different forms of RNA, uh, mostly what people think of as messenger RNA, which contains the code for proteins uh, because mm -hmm. each right? Uh, three amino acid, uh, sorry, three base pairs uh, are coded to one particular amino acid. Right. Um, so there could be some trimming that occurs between those codons uh, and such before the RNA actually is translated into a protein. Okay. Um, and have you looked into microvesicles and what's the difference between them and exosomes? Well, I'm not, I'm not really sure, to be honest with you, but I suspect that they may not contain genetic material. Mm. Uh, I, I know that when they examined uh, concentrated HIV that had been centrifuged from a cell culture, uh, they found that 90% of the material was impure, and a lot of it described as microvesicles, but I'm, I'm not sure either whether they're really different than, than uh, exosomes. Um, and an interesting theory um, when I was reading a paper on exosomes is that it said that viruses might have hijacked the exosome mechanism to become viruses. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's some very interesting uh, research related to that. So they have found exosomes, right, that definitely come from within the side of us, not from the outside like they say viruses do. And some of these exosomes have had vir so-called viral genetic material, either RNA or DNA, mm. inside them, 
right? So this kind of begs the question because if it's made in our own cells from our own genetic material, then it, are those sequences really viral or are they really our own? Well, it seems pretty obvious they're our own. Um, another, uh, I, I, somebody sent me a video that criticized you. I don't know if you've seen this, this um, yet. Uh, there's always, whenever, I, I guess it's a compliment, really. <laughs> that's, that's how I've been taking it. <laughs> yes. But um, they said, oh, yeah, you can, you can tell the difference between a virus and an exosome just by looking at it under an electron microscope. Um, and, and they say, you know, you can clearly, they showed this cartoon of the virus with the spikes. And they said, you can clearly see the spikes. And then they show the electron micrograph. And it's like, if I, I, I would look at it one time and I could see spikes. I looked at it another time, I could see disembodied spheres that were not connected. And then other times I would just see noise, right? Like it's so, it's, it's at such low resolution that you can see what you want to see. It, it's like yeah. looking at clouds, right? I see a dragon, you see a lion or a tiger. Um, and, and our brain, you know, sort of strengthens our hypothesis as we look at it more. But one of the things I was thinking is that if viruses did hijack the exosome mechanism, then viruses and exosomes would basically be identical, right? Like there's no way you could distinguish them. Well, that's absolutely true. And you know, it's funny that uh, they mentioned this particular criticism because actually, even if you go, go back all the way to the late 30s and 40s um, and look at the virology papers, like uh, for example, the kind of landmark paper from Thomas Rivers where he tried to uh, redefine Koch's postulates for viruses and make them easier to satisfy. So even in that paper, he recognized that uh, various uh, extracellular debris uh, could actually give you a false signal under the microscope uh, and it could look like what you might think is a virus. Mm -hmm. And so they spent a lot of time working on, you know, different protocols and such to try and mitigate this problem uh, to some degree. But there are other types of uh, cellular debris that may also look very similar, like one is called uh, apoptotic bodies, which uh, result when a, a cell reaches what they call senescence and undergoes programmed cell death, and it uh, splits apart into little blebs, and those can also resemble this and may be of the same scale. So th there's a lot of things to watch out for when you're looking under the microscope. Yes. Um... Now, in one of your tables in your presentation, you said that exosome. Okay, so let me let me step back for a minute to some of these higher level questions. So, do you believe that the exosomes are a cause or a consequence of whatever disease is being seen, or that they're totally irrelevant? Well, I haven't seen any uh, studies saying that exosomes cause any disease. So they're always described as a, a response to mm -hmm. some kind of illness process or exposure to a toxin or ionizing radiation or a psychological shock. Right. So you, you would say a consequence, but when I looked at the papers, I saw, uh, like the NEGM New England Journal of Medicine paper, I saw two electron micrographs and one of them had a whole bunch of little, um, particles in it. And my thought was, you cannot tell whether those particles have RNA in them at, at all, let alone whether they have the RNA that we're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. You would have to, you know, figure out a way to purify them 
from whatever else they're mixed with. And then if you were confident that you had a pure sample, then you could extract genetic material and characterize it. And, and so you could purify exosomes or viruses in essentially the same way. The difference presumably would be that if you exposed um, you know, an animal, I, I guess you can't do experiments like this on people, but you exposed an animal to, to the particles, if it got sick, you'd say you have a virus. And if nothing happened, you'd say you had an exosome. Well, I don't know if that's all that would be required, but certainly that would be uh, supporting uh, data. And you know, mm -hmm. there, there is evidence that we actually may exchange exosomes between people uh, because they have been found to be in, um, uh, I think when people cough or sneeze, they have found evidence of exosomes, or at least uh, they're, they're definitely present in the lungs. Right. Uh, I mean, that would be interesting if you could get somebody else's RNA inside you through this mechanism of, of an exosome. Um, one thing I was a little confused about in your presentation is you said that exosomes and COVID-19, or what's believed to be COVID-19, are 500 nanometers in diameter inside the cell and 100 nanometers outside. And I didn't understand what you meant by that, or, or why. Like, why do you think that's the case? Well, that's basically what they were shown to be in the images. Now, I can explain it more easily in, uh, with exosomes because before exosomes are released, they're in these larger vesicles they call uh, MVE, I think, multivesicular endosomes. Endo means inside. Right, and, I've seen MVB as well, multi yeah. multivesicular bodies, but same, right. I think they mean the same thing. Yes, I've seen different nomenclature in different papers. So, um, And then... You know, they show also when pictures of with that they say is the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus inside a cell and it basically is on that same scale. So that, that's part of what I was thinking is that are they really talking about the same thing? Right. So, so okay, I understand it now because like inside the cell you see an enveloped sphere. And of course you can't tell it's a sphere, it's just a cross section. So you see a circle that you assume that it's a sphere. You see an enveloped sphere with a bunch of tiny little spheres inside it. And then the theory seems to be that when it reaches the edge of the cell, it opens up and then all those tiny little spheres get released. Yeah, exactly correct. And so then you'd have the 500 nanometer, you know, it'd be kind of like the Easter, the big Easter egg. And then when you open it up, there's a whole bunch of little Easter eggs inside, which are 100 nanometers in size. Okay, so I, um, I, I understand that. So one of the criticisms which, which kind of blew my mind was that you put up one of the electron micrographs, I believe from the New England Journal of Medicine paper, and then beside it, you put up some exosomes and this guy went off on image manipulation. You hadn't changed the image. Now he did say that the second image you had didn't have a, a source, which is always nice to have. But I don't know how many times I've seen pictures of viruses on websites without a source from the mainstream. I guess that's okay for them to do that. Um, uh, but um, I, I just, uh, well, I was just kind of blown away by his criticism because it was obvious to me that you were showing um, a micro electromicrograph from a paper that says this is COVID 19. And on the right hand side, this is an exosome. And it's, it's, you can't really tell the difference. 
Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I'm pretty sure that I referenced every single image um, in, in that uh, presentation. They were in the last three pages. The, the third page might have got cut off on the video, but I've been freely distributing PDFs of the slideshow, okay. uh, which, which uh, contain all the references. So if somehow I missed it, then I apologize. It was just an oversight on my part. But, uh, but I, I knew that was really important to, to give references uh, for all mm -hmm. the images, especially because I thought, you know, I don't want people to question it. But all I did was, uh, you know, save the image and then paste it into the PowerPoint. I didn't uh, edit it in any other way. I mean, it says a lot about um, about what's happening. You know, it's kind of the Empire Strikes Back. I was listening to um, an interview, I think, with a Swedish epidemiologist who's been very critical of the lockdown and, and of the epidemiological models. And apparently, after he did a um, a very well uh, viewed, very heavily viewed YouTube, uh, people sort of slightly misinterpreted what he'd said about his CV. And and they interpreted oh. it to say that he was a professor at at um, of epidemiology at uh, Rockefeller, Rockefeller University. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But he actually hadn't said that. But, you know, probably he was a little bit ambiguous. And so instead of going after his ideas, they attacked you know, what they saw as scientific fraud in his CV, <laughs> which is... Right. Well, this is, a, this is a very telling sign because if you don't have a, uh, a rational argument based on, you know, the facts or ideas uh, purported, then you use what's called ad hominem, right, which is attack, right. the attack the character. And I've definitely, you know, experienced that many, many times. And I just, I don't respond because it's not substantive. Yeah, uh, you know, I agree that that's the best way to respond to those things is to ignore it because they're just um, they're just stupid. A another example of that is those two emergency room doctors from is it Kern County in uh, in uh, California? Yeah, I'm not sure, but I've seen I've seen parts of that uh, interview. They they've been going after those guys um, quite heavily, and uh, again, it's kind of like well, they're just like country hick doctors wanting to make some money right like it's it's um it, it's either like lies about what they were saying like um you know they just made up numbers or something or or they go after them you know like how can somebody from kern county in california argue with people from new york city right like that's just like if you live in new york city you have a, a superiority over everybody i guess Right. Well, that's always true, of course. But, um, you know, it's it, it's funny because, um, first of all, you're, you're not making any money from speaking against the uh, mainstream narrative on this. You're likely uh, to lose money. You're, you're <laughs> likely to. Right. Exactly. And uh, but, you know, like, uh, look at yourself, David, you're not you're not an MD. You don't have a doctorate in uh, virology or molecular biology, but you were able to spend the time and be thoughtful about it and you use your brain to figure out these things and and you've done an incredible job i mean i i've i've actually been to your website several times uh before i really knew who you were and um you know it was evident that there was real scholarship there so this you know false uh requirement that we have to be some kind of credentialed expert i th i think is a big part of the problem because if we give away our own power to uh, reason and research and study, 
to designated es experts, then we're, we're subjected to whatever their opinion is and however that affects us uh, according to someone else's wishes. I kind of think it's an advantage for me because I cannot uh, stand on a pulpit and preach. Like if, if somebody has, you know, a, a PhD and an MD and like epidemiology and virology and stuff like that, they can, they can stand up and say things without giving any references. They, they can just say, this is a deadly virus. It's going to kill a million Americans uh, if we don't do something and, and we're going to have to shut down the whole country and they can get away with that. If I was to say that, it would be like, well, there's some nutcase in Canada, right? So if I don't have a reference for pretty much everything I say, um, then I will be t attacked on that basis uh, because I don't have the status. And I, I think that's a problem with, with status because a lot of people with high status actually aren't as familiar with the, the literature as you'd, you'd like to imagine. And they certainly don't examine it critically. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, they just, uh, you know, accept all these premises. I mean, if, if people were critical, they would look at these uh, papers alleging to isolate a new virus and they would say, this, this is ridiculous. It doesn't even follow the basic scientific method. Yes. Well, let's move on to the RT-PCR test. And um, uh, so we, we know that RT-PCR is looking for RNA. Um, and uh, you know they have some RNA. They say it's from a virus. Uh, this critic, this critic of you said, "Oh, it's easy for RT-PCR to distinguish viral RNA from cellular endogenous RNA." I mean, what, what's your thought on that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, the PCR is a very powerful uh, technique, and it has led to some, you know, major advances in molecular biology because. Uh, you have this situation where you have just tiny, tiny amounts of genetic material that you couldn't possibly measure, and this technique allows you to amplify it so you can characterize it and, and examine what its role might be in, you know, in some experiment that you're looking at. And it's an excellent tool for that, but it comes with a very big downside that you have to confirm these things by other methods because when you amplify something, you amplify the signal, but you also amplify the noise, right? And this is true for every mm -hmm. type of amplification. If you go to your stereo and crank the volume way up, you're going to notice that you hear a hissing sound, mm -hmm. right? And that's because you're also amplifying that noise. And so if a signal is absent, the noise can become the signal. And so that's the big uh, downside of that technique. And the more you amplify it, the bigger the risk that you're going to interpret the noise as a signal. Yeah. It, the, I mean, the RT-PCR uses fluorescence. So you're not actually measuring the amount of DNA. You're amount, uh, measuring the amount of light. And so if that fluorescence can be produced in some other way, like as you say, running it too many cycles, you start to get a light signal that is is going to look exactly the same as a light signal from DNA. There's, there's no difference. It's just fluorescence. You can't exactly see the right. DNA. And, you know, uh, when two strands of RNA or DNA come together, they don't always line up perfectly. Like sometimes it only takes a few base pairs to anneal them together, and that might not be the full sequence. Like there may be a stretch of 10 or 15 or even 20 amino of, uh, base pairs that are the same, but then, then it's different. So like even if you took uh, the probes and primers that they've designed for the test, and I actually had a researcher do this, 
um, and you compare them against all the sequences in the officially reported human genome, you see lots of overlap in terms of 15 or 20 base pair sequences, whereas the primer length is, is only 26 base pairs. So right. you have uh, you know, a lot of overlap, and that's where you could get errors where uh, a human uh, sequence could be amplified and then create that fluorescent signal that you're talking about. Right. A another thing I thought of just today when, I mean, this critic was actually quite useful because he said some things that made me think. So I have to give him credit for that. But he said, if you look for the DNA sequence of the primers in the BLAST database, you don't find it. And, and you're agreeing with that. You're saying that the full sequence is not there. But if you trim the sequence a little bit, you can actually find it. So what's close to that sequence is in human DNA. So this is where I was going with my earlier question is if the RNA is not produced directly from DNA, and we know that that's the case, then you're not going to find RNA sequences in the BLAST database. Because um, you're, they're DNA sequences. What you're looking at is the complementary RNA sequence. And if the RNA that's produced endogenously is not directly from your DNA, there's RNA in your body that is not going to be in the BLAST database. Right? David, that's a really good point. Um, I'm, I can't believe I didn't think of that. But uh, yeah, that's really good because there is processing of RNA strands after transcription. And so depending on if that occurs, you know, uh, before you look at the sequence, it could be different than the, than the DNA sequence. Yeah, I mean, if we had a BLAST database for RNA, then we could search that. But uh, just because you, you convert RNA to DNA that doesn't make it DNA, really, right? It's, it's a surrogate. Yeah. Uh, you, you also mentioned the 80% false positive rate, which was um, uh, mentioned uh, in a Chinese paper with an English abstract, which was put onto PubMed, then it was like retracted, withdrawn. Um, but if, as far as I can tell, the original Chinese article is still present. Yeah, it's it's still on PubMed, actually. It just has in all caps uh, withdrawn uh, written in the title somewhere. But uh, yeah, it's quite interesting that 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 paper was pulled for some reason. Uh, it certainly, you know, it goes against the mainstream narrative. But, you know, it's impossible to calculate an accurate error rate for the test because we don't know what it's testing. And there certainly is no gold standard to test it against. Because when they determine the, the RNA sequence that they use for the test, they took it from a source of lung fluid that had multiple sources of RNA in it. So how do you know where the RNA came from? Uh, the only way to do this experiment uh, properly would be to first isolate the so-called viral particles and then extract the genetic material directly from them. And then you'd know it came from that particle, but it still wouldn't tell you necessarily what that particle was, but it would be a lot better than what we have now. Yes, I mean, this is something I've been saying from the beginning. It seems so obvious that if, if the virus exists, then particles exist with the RNA inside them. And if we purify those particles and we analyze the RNA, and the RNA is the 30,000 base uh, sequence that, that is claimed to be coronavirus, then we're, we're a lot closer to proof that it is actually viral. And of course, nobody's even tried to do that. 
No, and it's it's astonishing that they haven't because there you can find plenty of papers where they look at viruses from bacteria or uh, algae where they actually do that um, that experiment. They they can. I mean, it's not that difficult actually to purify the virus particles because they're so much smaller than anything else. Um, so you know they didn't haven't even attempted that. And the, the only way that they said that this DNA or RNA sequence rather was related to coronaviruses was based on the sequence identity, which was less than 80% identical. So uh, far less similar than we are to chimpanzees at 96%. Mm -hmm. and, and then if you look back at the SARS-CoV-1 uh, virus, uh, you'll see that they actually did the same exact procedure. So we don't really know what the, that sequence of RNA, uh, the source of it is or what it represents. And, you know, you can follow this, uh, chain of RNA back to the earliest papers, and you'll see that they did the same exact procedure. They must have flipped from uh, using uh, serology to DNA, uh, to RNA, DNA at some point, and uh, I assume that they found, you know, uh, samples with what they considered to be coronavirus antibodies, and they pulled out some RNA and said, oh, this is the coronavirus without actually proving that it was ever in viral-like particles. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, the antibodies are also very uh, much less specific than people might uh, believe they are. Yeah, I know for HIV, um, uh, a researcher put together a list of over 100 documented causes for false positive HIV tests. Um, but HIV tests are generally considered to be 99.9% .9 accurate, except when they're not, of course. <laughs> well, I'm not sure where those numbers come from, but I've seen experimental evidence of uh, far lower accuracy. And in any case, it can't really be accurate because uh, HIV has never really been shown to cause uh, disease either. Yeah, never been purified. And, and I think, uh, you know, another point I, when I read some of these manufactured labels is it appears that the manufacturer is in charge of, of validating their own test. So if I was developing a test and I knew that I had to achieve 99% accurate to get like FDA approval, then I'm just going to sit there tweaking the test until we can run through, you know, the samples we got from the FDA as sort of like st standard reference samples until we can get our 99%. And once we get the 99%, you put it in a box, send it to the FDA, put a ribbon on it and start selling it. So you're not well, going to send it to the FDA unless you've achieved that goal, if you well, even achieved it. Right. It's quite interesting you mentioned that because uh, I recently met with uh, someone who is an independent researcher and uh, has, has gotten uh, in some trouble for this. But this person actually worked on a clinical trial, uh, an early clinical trial for AIDS, and um, was telling me uh, that they had a conversation with another uh, investigator who was doing the testing, like you're discussing the antibody tests. And they noticed something really strange is that the, the testing protocol required excessive dilution of the samples. Mm -hmm. And so he played around with it, uh, trying to dilute it less. And basically it was 100% positive. So what they did is they created a test that was 100% positive in every person and then diluted the sample enough to 
get the right percentage positive in the in the right people according to what you just described so that was actually the trick uh, that was used in that case and, and of course we know that manufacturers would never cheat as we saw in the gas mileage scandal with Volkswagen right <laughs> I mean, that's, well, that's exactly what they were doing, right? Is that they were sending to, I guess, in the Department of Transportation or something, they were sending cars to the Department of Transportation that were programmed to detect that they were undergoing this specific test and then run far more efficiently than they would at any other time. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, it's even easier in the case of the HIV test because it's never been FDA approved. So they didn't really, uh, weren't required to submit uh, all of the testing. Are you talking I mean, about the PCR test? The antibody test. Uh, okay. Uh, I thought that those were, I mean, there's a list of FDA, there's an FDA list of antibody tests. The, the uh, PCR tests say not for diagnosis, which is interesting. Um, but the antibody tests do say diagnostic, but uh, if, if it's not being officially approved, it wouldn't surprise me. Well, it's possible that there were uh, more than one test and maybe some later test was approved. But my understanding is that the initial uh, test uh, never, never was, uh, never was uh, applied for approval. It was just somehow allowed to be used. Maybe it had a, one of those emergency authorizations like the current uh, antibody test. Right. There is for, um, uh, an anecdote in, I think, in, the, in John Crutzen's book, science fictions and maybe in another sort of old history of HIV and it, it describes how um, they got Gallo's antibody test and it wasn't performing very well and so Gallo bullied the CDC into allowing him sort of access to the samples so he, he got access to the samples they were using to validate the test and then he had adjusted the optical density so that he could get the right percentage and then sent it back to the CDC and of course it passed their test. <laughs> right. That's very convenient. That's like uh, getting the answers before the exam. Yes, every student's dream. Okay, so let's go to mortality. Um, so there are some places that have reported unusual spikes in mortality. Uh, Italy and New York are examples. But let's start with Wuhan. Is there actually, was there a spike in mortality in, in Wuhan, to your knowledge? Well, uh, no, not that I can uh, discern. Um, you know, the most accurate numbers that I was uh, able to really look at, and I didn't focus a lot on China, but uh, there was a professor at the University of Manitoba who used to be the uh, chief public health officer for the province there, uh, who gave um, a press conference uh, about this. And he gave the uh, official uh, mortality numbers once everything was uh, already really over um, in China. And so what I did was I extrapolated those numbers to the United States population and it worked out to be about 10,000 uh, deaths total. So this was, uh, you know, far less than any typical flu season. So I didn't feel that it was uh, substantially elevated to warrant any, any further scrutiny. I, I think that um, a, a lot of, like people get confused over the panic because there are, um, <clears throat> The number of people who test positive, there's uh, the number of people who die, 
There's a number of people who are sick. And then there's a number of people who are quarantined for, you know, who aren't positive, but they just happen to be on a cruise ship or they happen to have an, a relative in Wuhan who got sick or something like that. And the smallest number, of course, is the number of deaths. But people see these scary, you know, a million coronavirus cases around the world or whatever. And it scares people and they get confused with, is that, does that mean a million people have died or are going to die? Uh, yeah. Okay, but there are places like Italy and New York where there are spikes in mortality. So what's your explanation for that if it's not the virus? Well, I, I don't really know that there's really um, any meaningful spike in mortality in those places. Um, I haven't looked that closely at Italy, but in the United States, um, I've been following uh, the CDC's website and they are, you know, tallying on a, actually they update it on a daily basis and they're looking at weekly uh, mortality and they, of course, they report, you know, deaths uh, attributable to COVID-19, but you can't look at those numbers because you know that they're, every death certificate, they're putting that down instead of the other illnesses. So they also have the all-cause mortality. So I've been following those numbers and they have a, a nice column in there. They're kind of doing my work for me where they average the mortality during the same week for the last three years. So from, you know, the average uh, uh, deaths over the past three years for week one, you know, January 1st through 7th, mm -hmm. and then so on and so forth to, to the current date. And the overall um, uh, mortality compared to those past three years has actually been lower this year by 6%, uh, which amounts to about 44,000 less deaths uh, than the same period last year. So if the you know, for the whole country, we average everything out, uh, actually less people are dying this year. So of course, if you narrow down it on uh, tight geographic areas, and um, or if you just look at one short window of time, you can show that there may be a spike here or there, but you can also show that there's a depression in other places and other short periods of time. So I think it's important to look at, at the aggregate data because uh, that just gives us a more accurate picture of the overall trend rather than what's seeing, you know, from day to day. Right. And, and we know that there's, there's some funny business going on with the numbers. Like I, there's a, I read a newspaper article from New York where 55 people died um, in a nursing home. They were all ascribed as coronavirus deaths. And I, it, it then said in the article, that unfortunately nobody in the in the nursing home had been able to have a test, so, <laughs> so, so they had no test for these fifty-five people. And in Belgium, I saw an article that that showed that the government is now counting every death in a nursing home as COVID, and five percent of the nursing home population has been tested. So right. You, you're right that if you look at the COVID column, it's I mean it was always zero before, right? Because it's new. But it's the total mortality, you know, if, if it's insignificant on total mortality, why are we shutting down the country? Well, there must be another reason that is not related to protecting our health. And, and do you have any ideas? <laughs> 
Well, um, you know, I don't want to get uh, too crazy on the show, but um, if you look at uh, the United Nations uh, document uh, that was originally called Agenda 21 and it's now called Agenda 2030, it talks a lot about sustainable growth and development, uh, which are kind of code words. But if you read between the lines, what you'll see that it's talking about is moving towards a sort of global one world uh, government, right? And uh, we've heard this uh, term referring to this many times. In fact, if you, you can look on YouTube and find uh, where almost every uh, modern president has used the term, uh, let's usher in a new world order. You can see it from Henry Kissinger as well. It's written on the dollar bill. And so I think it has to do with pursuing this new world order, which would be a, a globalist society with uh, centralized control over everyone. And uh, many of the steps outlined in that document are consistent with what's going on now. So they talk about uh, like protecting the health uh, uh, of the population from communicable diseases and such. And so this matches up with the contact tracing technology that they have already rolled out in some Asian uh, countries and are trying to roll out in the United States. And I'm not sure about Canada that will basically track uh, all of our personal health information uh, from a sort of public health perspective, uh, but it will be used to uh, either deny or grant privileges to us based on our health status. And also our location. Like it, the, the idea I think is that, that they track your location to a minute detail. And if you show up at the hospital with coronavirus three next year, then they can go back through everybody else's records and they can say who intersected within say 10 meters of this person and then they can do contact tracing. Now they might find out that, that what they end up with is like a million people, you know, like it might not actually be practical, but the idea is that they can just drag anybody in and they say, you know, you were in the supermarket and, and you walked within a couple of meters, uh, a few feet of somebody who's now sick. So you've got to go get tested. And I, I know there was a case in uh, China of, a, of this old man who, who went to hospital with minor symptoms. He tested negative, uh, left the hospital, tested positive again. And so three times he went back to the hospital. But the scary thing to me is that the last two times he went to the hospital without any symptoms, they put him on antiviral drugs. So what's the chance that if you get dragged in, you know, because you were you were in contact with somebody and you test positive on the test that they're going to coerce you into taking drugs or vaccines. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty likely. So I saw a video a couple of weeks ago of a gentleman who went to a hospital uh, somewhere in the United States and um, you know, for just to get help with some kind of symptom, I forget what it was. And they demanded that he take a test mm -hmm. and, and he didn't want to. Um, and he, you know, just very calm for a long time and he was recording the whole interaction. And basically what they did is they got all of these uh, healthcare workers um, and they cornered him in his room and they just kept coercing him more and more uh, strongly until they actually just physically subdued him and held him down and, and took his blood. Wow. Uh, and, and all those people think they're doing the right thing because they're, they're being propagandized that the most important thing in the world is protecting us from, um, from viruses. And, and I mean, we have seen 
an incredible unity in the world where the Chinese and American and Italian and British government are acting as if they were joined at the hip, right? They're, they're all doing the same things, they're reacting in the same way um, with relatively small um, differences. Like I've never seen this for any other crisis. Absolutely. And it's uh, also with respect to the, the financial policies of shutting down the world's economy. Um, you know, they're all acting in concert with each other in, in almost every uh, policy direction. And so this, you know, this is what really uh, one of the main factors that leads me to think about this globalist agenda, because if all the governments are acting together, you know, then where's the sovereignty? Well, I'm, I'm always an optimist and I, I see signs like in my province of Alberta until very recently, it was like we got to flatten the curve. They kept putting out these models that were, were so egregiously wrong that it, you'd think it would be embarrassing. But the premier of the province just announced that uh, tomorrow they're opening up uh, provincial parks, the equivalent of state parks again that uh, by the 14th, they'll be opening up clothing stores and hairdressers and things like that. So there's, there's all of a sudden this race to reverse course. And, and uh, you know, I wonder, I, I wonder if this plan of keeping the world under, well, I think some people had this plan to keep the world under lockdown until there was a vaccine is, is, is kind of blown up in their faces. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. Um, I'm not hearing of any uh, jurisdictions in the United States following that. In fact, um, just uh, shortly before the call, I was uh, looking at some uh, new information and I saw that um, the deadline that was supposed to be May 4th in several places was just extended another two weeks. Texas uh, said they were gonna back down and, and start opening things up again which is pretty big. It's a big state, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I hope that that really happens and I'd love to see it. And you said in, in Alberta province, it's tomorrow? Yeah, they're starting tomorrow. They're opening up uh, provincial parks. And then by the 14th, there's a whole bunch of stuff. They're opening up campsites, um, a variety of stores that are being closed the, the whole time. Um, you know, there's going to be all these BS restrictions, like restaurants have to have every other table empty. But, uh, you know, I guess if a restaurant can start making money again, they're, they're going to be somewhat grateful that the government took 100% of their business away and is now giving them back 50%. Although how many people have the money to go to a restaurant since they haven't been working <laughs> for the past month, right? Yeah, excellent. Uh, you're right on there. And, you know, I, I would definitely like to be able to go to a restaurant um, and other stores and, and such and have uh, a more normal existence again. But I'm not going to patronize any places if they're going to continue to put up these ridiculous, you know, plastic barriers and wear masks and have tape on the floor to make sure we stay far enough away from each other. Mm. Just, you know, that's not the experience that I'm looking for. No, yeah. I mean, going to a, a restaurant with white tablecloths and then you're surrounded by a plastic curtain, I'm not sure that... <laughs> That's really the ambiance you wanted. You may as well eat at home without the... the well, uh, I, I saw, um, and I don't know if this was uh, just, you know, um, uh, if this was an actual restaurant or a description. It was like in a mainstream uh, media article and it showed, you know, it's like the new normal kind of thing because that's what they keep saying as the buzzword. And it showed two people sitting opposite each other at a restaurant table 
with a big plastic shield between them. <laughs> yes. I presume that was humor. I hope it was. I, I can't believe that people are, are actually um, thinking that. But I mean, I think the pressure is going to be that great. I mean, you, you go out for dinner, it's like three or four couples. They don't live together. I mean, the couples individually do, but you know, the eight people will say at the table, they don't live together. I mean, how are you going to maintain social distancing amongst those people? It's just absurd. And then is there any scientific evidence that social distancing works? Well, I think you, you know that there's not. There's only really computer models or there's highly biased, uh, a couple of highly biased studies that in a review in BMC Public Health, uh, they basically, uh, the authors concluded that they just discount them because they they were not not properly designed experiments. So there's really not any real life um, studies that show any benefit to this. Uh, we've been talking um, for um, a, a while. We don't have much time left. So I'd just like to give you a, an opportunity to address any other points that you think are really important to uh, add to this discussion. Well, you know, I, I know we've been talking about a lot of science and a little bit about policy, but, um, you know, I think the, the most important thing that we can do, you know, as uh, individuals, as humans who want to preserve their dignity and humanity and not um, cooperate with these kind of draconian measures that will only get worse uh, the more we cooperate, I would encourage you to consider um, you know, not following the guidelines. Uh, one thing that's important to point out is that all of these, you know, so-called uh, mandates are not really mandatory. Um, even Governor Cuomo in New York, uh, who has written an executive order, like I think every day for the last two months, um, is on camera saying that, you know, they can't, they don't really have the authority to enforce any of this. Um, it's all really voluntary measures and uh, there's really not going to be any serious uh, consequences if they they may try to take, you know, one or two people to jail here and there like they've already done, like to make uh, crazy examples. Like I think there was a, a parent with their child at a playground and uh, it, it, they said that they were too close to each other, a parent and child. The parent and, and yeah. child were too close to each other. Yes. And they arrested them. Uh, but but, you know, that's that's really just for show. And I think if you, even if a, a, a law enforcement officer approaches you in this situation, I mean, they're a human too. They're going to be, if you talk to them with respect and, um, and, and compassion, uh, they're not going to really give you any trouble. And it's important to know what the, what the law says so that you can um, take into account how to approach this. Like, for example, in, in New York, uh, the law says that um, you're, you know, required or strongly encouraged to wear a mask unless it's not medically tolerable. And I, that applies really to everyone because uh, how do you breathe when you're constricting your breathing? So, uh, you know, so if somebody is serious and asks me why I'm not wearing a mask, I just simply say that I'm unable to tolerate it. And, uh, you know, it's only happened one time so far, but that person uh, accepted it and continued to serve mm -hmm. me and there was no problem. The gov governor of California, Gavin Newsom, was apparently really annoyed that when it got really hot in California, a bunch of people went to the beach and had fun. They hate to see that. So he's closed the beaches in Orange County. I'm just wondering whether 
I mean, this is a new form of civil disobedience. It's like put on a bikini, go to the beach, <laughs> and and uh, you know strike one against uh, the uh, the state. It's it's almost like this is some dystopian movie that's unbelievable. Yeah, exactly right. And you know this kind of uh, passive resistance. Um, is the kind of thing that can really make changes. Like, I, I, I don't think going to the state capital or uh, the provincial headquarters or, you know, any government body and, you know, having signs and chants or getting riled up, I don't think that's going to really uh, result in major change. But if everybody just goes to the beach and has fun as normal, like, what are they going to do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're you're right. They're probably swoop in and arrest a couple of people. But I mean, if there's a thousand people on the beach, it's way beyond the powers of the police to do anything. And and it it's like, do the police really want to be uh, filling up, um, you know, police buses with a, a bunch of teenagers who just went down there to horse around? And Absolutely. And you know, I think that I, I just want to stress one thing because if you're gonna do this, which you know I think is the right thing to do, it's important that you maintain yourself as a very uh moral individual, that you uh treat people with respect and compassion, and that you don't let yourself um, you know, get riled up or get out of control or behave badly because, you know, that is the one thing that is going to justify some kind of police action. And, um, and you know, then it'll, it could turn law enforcement or military against us because if they think that people are violent and out of control, uh, that's what's going to cause it to backfire. But if we are simply standing up to preserve our rights and we're being peaceful and respectful, um, mm. they're not going to, there's nothing that can be done really. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Well, I, I would like to thank you for joining me today. It was a great discussion. Um, we uh, agreed on just about everything, but it was still it was still a good discussion. <laughs> so um, I, I really appreciate it. And, and uh, all those in my audience who've been asking for this, I, I'm sure you're happy now. So thank you. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, David. I'm glad, I'm glad we got in touch with each other. Y yeah, it's great. Goodbye, then. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to episode 254 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. We are infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberapay.com if you wish to commit to monthly donations. Until next week. Thank you and goodbye.